All right, so this morning we're going to have our second of our two sessions on homosexuality. So before we kind of continue with the notes where we left off, um, let's just recap in a sense what we were talking through, thinking through on Monday. Commented on how we were focusing our analysis on what the catechism describes when it's talking about a condition. So the focus there isn't on actions, homosexual acts, but actually the notion of an orientation, an inclination, um, relations between men and women who experience an exclusive or predominant sexual attraction to the same sex, same gender, if I'm going to put those words together. Um, and I was noticing that in a lot of the tradition, the focus has been on the immorality of the acts themselves rather than focusing on the question of an orientation to those acts. We noted drawing on Molina's text that you had to read, but I also gave a brief summary of his point drawing from Aquinas, that actually this is, even if it isn't, from what I've read at least, widely reflected on in the tradition, it is in the tradition, that St Thomas has this notion that although there are things that for the human nature per se are normative, you're inclined to, there can be an individual of the species who is inclined to something that isn't proper to his nature. Um, and that, as St. Thomas is describing it, could be with respect to many things, but that would also therefore be a relevant way of describing um, this condition we're thinking of. We noted terminology, the danger of slapping a label on somebody or them slapping a label on themselves and then limiting themselves by this label. I'm gay, that's what defines me, that's the most important thing about me. I noted that for some people, sadly, that does seem to be their experience of life, feeling that they don't fit in, feeling they're excluded or whatever, that sometimes a single condition does seem to as someone experiences it, define their whole life. But that isn't what defines them. They are primarily a person, primarily a child of God, primarily someone made by God to be loved, that their identity is something much more significant than the particular condition we're looking at today. And obviously the terminology used by the letter to the from the CDF to the bishops in 1986 that avoids the word homosexual and says instead a homosexual person so that we're not making that label sum up the entire reality of that person. It, primarily a person who, yes, is a homosexual in inclination. But I said that I, I felt um, a better term, as is in, I think, more recent literature, a person with same-sex attraction. And this initial SSA um, you see in a fair bit of the literature. We reflected quite a bit on the words disorder, intrinsically disordered, objective disorder, the words unnatural and natural, noting that there are many things in different human beings that are disordered, that as a result of concupiscence, there are just many disorders in us. So when we say this is a disorder, 
It is one of many disorders. It's not unique. Um, but it is a disorder that is unnatural. So whereas gluttony is a disorder, or at least can be a disorder, um, to a thing that in itself is natural, eating, but it's a disorder because it's excessive. The homosexual inclination would be an example of a disorder that is towards an activity in itself, contrary to nature. We had a brief discussion about the cause of the homosexual inclination, um, about how there is no consensus among science, among psychology, as to what its cause is. Um, I indicated my, if I was going to put my money on it, I would say it's a combination of multiple things. And that's why an individual might have one of those things in his background and this not manifest, and vice versa. Um, but the cause isn't known. And in a sense, whatever the cause is, it doesn't change our theological analysis. Because we know in human nature there are, because of our fallen existence, many things not right with us. Illnesses, disorders. Um, and then we briefly touched on, um, with reference to some of the church documents, the question of just and unjust discrimination. So any um, violence, abuse, disrespect directed to somebody because of their homosexual inclination is condemned by the church. But the church also says there are some roles that wouldn't be suited um, for somebody with this inclination. And among the things that were listed there was the question of same-sex marriage. So that's what I want us to start our reflection on today. So if you turn to page seven of the notes. In a perfect seminary, um, I don't know which course this would come into. It could be in your social justice course. It could be in your foundational moral theology. There are a number of places this could be covered. I think it's usually good practice to repeat and overlap things, um, particularly a topic like this that is so controversial, so that you hear it, hopefully a slightly different perspective with a different professor, but to make sure you do hear it. Um, so what I'm saying here in terms of principles, I'm hoping aren't the first time you're hearing them. I'm hoping at least the principles you've heard elsewhere, even if precisely tying it to this application, you might or might not have done. So, title of the page, Civil Law, Homosexuality and Same-Sex Marriages. And I start there quoting the Catechism, which quotes St. Thomas Aquinas with the definition of what a law is. Um, and in our context, a civil law. Law is an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who is in charge of the community. So if you remember your, have you done this in social justice? What? Part of coming in your life. 
in canon law, right, in any of your ethics courses, you have. Okay, so hopefully this is repeating. Um, so promulgated, so the law isn't promulgated, it's not a law. Uh, the natural law, St. Thomas says, was promulgated at creation with the making of nature. An ordinance, meaning it has been properly decreed and written and formulated in order to be binding. But it has to be of reason and of the common good. That if it isn't for the common good, and then the catechism quoting St. Thomas, Augustine, um, more recently John Twenty-Third in his encyclical on peace, I think it was on peace, um, that an unjust law is an act of violence, that law comes from those who have power. If they are imposing an unjust law on the people, it is an act of violence against them. So it's a serious thing to enact a law that is contrary to reason or contrary to the common good. So, those are the two subheadings I've put on that page. Of reason and for the common good. So firstly, of reason. So I quote Russell Hittinger, who's one of the um, big guns with respect to natural law theory in this country. He says, human laws determine the euro left indeterminate by the natural law. Um, so just thinking generally what that means. So there are many things in nature, the natural law, that are true, but in a particular context, a particular society, need to be made specific. So theft is, theft is contrary to, um, to the natural law. Theft is damaging to the common good of a society. But how are you going to define property? How are you going to define theft? In every particular context, culture, society, the local ordinances need to specify all of that. And, you know, laws on theft, laws on property vary in every place. Um, and it's right that they vary, because there's something that varies as society varies in different contexts. So should, you know, traffic, you need to have regulation of traffic. I think you can say that's in the natural law. But whether cars should drive on the left-hand side or the right-hand side, you know, does God have an opinion on this? Um, well, there are some things he leaves for us to determine. Um, but the principle, um, you know, human society needs coordination among traffic, needs coordination to avoid accidents. Making determinate what's indeterminate in the general the natural law. So say there are numerous ways that civil laws might enshrine marriage. So that, you know, can vary even among kind of nominally Christian countries. So just thinking of Europe, um, this, the state regulation of marriage in Britain and in France is different in terms of when the state comes in. So in Britain, there's a general presupposition um, that the law has been formulated such that a church wedding is a state wedding. The state recognizes it. You have your service in the church. 
you're married in the eyes of the state. In France, you have two parallel services, one in the church, one at the town hall, whatever the term is in France. Two distinct services in order that the state recognizes your union. Um, I don't think it would be obvious to say that one of these is approved by God and one isn't, that you can change how you structure your laws of marriage. You can make determinants what's general in the natural order. But I say civil laws on marriage, in as much as they are true laws, are based on what the natural law teaches about marriage. That it's a union of one man, one woman, for life, ordered to fruitfulness. So if... Um, if a, a nation started formulating marriage laws that were only for 10 years, for better, for worse, for 10 years, um, that would be contrary to right reason. That's um, so what the church would say, that we can recognize in the human person, in human nature, an orientation to permanence in this thing of a, a man-woman relationship. So a civil law that failed to recognize that wouldn't be a true law. And that you can argue that case on the basis of reason, right reason. That's what we mean by natural law thinking. Okay, my second little section, for the common good. So, again, quoting the Catechism, it is the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society. That's the only reason the state exists. It doesn't exist for its own sake. It exists to promote the common good. So the laws it passes have no function except the common good. Therefore, that's what we measure them by. If they're not serving the common good, they're unjust laws. They're what Augustine, the Catechism, would say are therefore non-laws. They're not laws. As John Paul II put it, a caricature of legality. They have the appearance, the trapping of law, but they're not law. A caricature of legality. That's how he described abortion and euthanasia laws. Okay, let's think then about marriage and the common good. So as we've been saying many different lectures coming from different angles marriage society needs children to ensure its future so if we were, you remember our very first lecture we were looking at ancient Rome, ancient Greece how even the pagan Augustus was promoting marriage because his society needed more children they didn't have enough children to keep the empire society needs children Society needs a stable place for children to be raised. This is what marriage in the natural order provides. Thus, society needs marriage and needs to promote marriage to serve this function. So society, a government that is failing to promote marriage, is failing to promote the common good. A society that is failing to promote that unique male-female union that is inherently ordered to life, inherently ordered to children, inherently ordered to 
the future of society. If your government isn't doing that, it's failing in its function. It's failing to promote the common good. Now, what about adoption by same-sex couples? Because um, this is obviously... Well, this comes up in a number of contexts, but if we're saying marriage is about children in the future, well, there are those that would say, well, same-sex couples, they can just adopt children, and then they're serving children in the common good. So, see, same-sex couples are not like marriage, in that the church would say they're not suitable places to raise children. Now, why would that be? Um, Jacob, would you mind reading that? So this is a block quote from the CDF on the legal recognition of same-sex unions. As experience has shown, the absence of sexual complementarity in these unions creates obstacles in the normal development of children who would be placed in the care of such persons. They would be deprived of the experience of either fatherhood or motherhood. Allowing children to be adopted by persons living in such unions would actually mean doing violence to these children in the sense that their condition of dependency would be used to place them in an environment that is not conducive to their full human development. This is gravely immoral and in open contradiction to the principle recognized also in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child that the best interests of the child as the weaker and more vulnerable party are to be the paramount consideration in every case. Did we already quote that on Monday? Or is that another course? No, okay, so to what's being said here. Um, the reference to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. So who, who are we concerned about in adoption of children? So the way this is sometimes presented to us is if same-sex couples, they've got a right to have a child. Well, that isn't putting the rights of the child primary, that's putting the rights of the couple primary. And, you know, when we have these very high-profile characters, whether it's Elton John or whoever, and they want to have a child, well, is it for the good of the child that that's all happening, or is it to satisfy a need in them? Deprived of the experience by the fatherhood or motherhood. Now, obviously, lots of people are deprived of that experience by becoming orphans, um, by the death of a parent. But that's different from consciously choosing to put a child into that situation. And people that are orphans, you know, they know they've, they've missed something. Um, the thought that we're gonna deliberately, consciously put somebody into that situation isn't putting the rights of the child first. And the absence of sexual complementarity. Um, so a child needs both role models at home for a healthy upbringing. It needs a father figure, it needs a mother figure. So we live at a moment in human history when there have been so many broken marriages, so many children growing up in homes without a father, that we've got lots of statistical analysis of what that tends towards, not in every case, but it tends towards children with anger issues, with violence, um, with 
you know, a lack of a drive to succeed, a, a lack of a belief that you can succeed because you've not had a, a father figure at home. Similarly with a lack of a, a mother figure, that you need these, the complementarity um, for a stable upbringing. And when you don't, as in our society today, you have that not just kind of one child that doesn't have that at home, but many children, almost the norm, then something increasingly dysfunctional happens in the kind of group experience of children of what they're looking to. So I can remember growing up um, in my class at school, um, I think of the 30 of us, I think there was one child in my class whose parents were divorced. Um, you know, it was a, a rare phenomenon. Um, but that one child was able to look at other normal situations around him to have a vision of normality. Um, now, so I can remember one of the parishes I was in, the youth group I set up, realizing at a certain stage, the majority of my group here don't have a father at home. Um, and so when I was talking about God as father, you know, all kinds of things are very difficult for them to, to understand. That it's not for the common good to be having children put into same-sex couples. It's not for the good of the individual child to be creating that situation. So say, if there's a death, if there's a bereavement, yes, there are many cases when children grow up without a father or a mother, but it's different to consciously create that situation in having couples, same-sex couples adopt. So what does that mean? What then is an unjust law? Well, I've said this already. Um, a civil law is only a true law in as much as it conforms to reason, i.e. to the natural moral law. An unjust law is therefore not a law, but an act of violence, an act of the power of the state imposing something that isn't based in reason, isn't based in the common good, imposing that on the people. And so quoting John Paul II, really what we have here is only a tragic caricature of legality. Okay, so that's kind of the general principles on one page. Let's look at um, two longer sections of church documents over the next two pages. Um, so the first page, I've got a block quote at the top on de facto unions. Um, do you all know what I mean by a de facto union? So a de facto union is when you have, originally speaking, a man and a woman living together as if they were married. So they're not married, but they are living like they were married. It's a de facto union. And in our society, where increasingly couples are just living together, um, this is kind of the norm now. Um, but all through human history, there have been many examples of this. So um, sometimes in some parts of, of 
history, kind of the poor just didn't almost have the luxury of marriage. So they would be living together. Um, so it's not an entirely new phenomenon. Um, so there's been a trend in Western law to give couples that are in one of these unions, a de facto union, the same rights that married couples have. Um, and among the scenarios where this would come up, um, the risk of stating the obvious, would be something like a hospital. So your partner has some accident, they're rushed to the hospital, you as their partner rush there to go and see them, and if you're not married, well, why would you be allowed in? You don't take the boxes. So the call was that anyone is a partner or a de facto union of some kind should have the same legal rights as marriage. Similarly for property rights, inheritance rights. So there's a whole range of things. But these are people who haven't committed themselves to each other in marriage. They therefore haven't committed in that to serve the common good the way marriage serves the common good. So why should the state give them the same rights if they're not giving back to society, back to the common good, what the commitment of marriage gives? Daniel, could you read that block quote? So this is from, it's from the year 2000, it's from the Pontifical Council for the Family, a document on exactly this marriage family marriage and de facto unions. Through public recognition of de facto unions, an asymmetrical juridical framework is established. Whereas society would take an obligation towards the partners in a de facto union, they in turn would not take on the essential obligations to society that are proper to marriage. With regard to the recent legislative attempts to make the family and de facto unions equivalent, including homosexual unions, it is good to keep in mind that their juridical recognition is the first step toward their equivalency. Members of parliament should be reminded about the grave responsibility to oppose them. For lawmakers, and in particular Catholic members of parliament, should not favor it, this type of legislation with their vote because it is contrary to the common good and the truth about man, and thus truly unjust. These legal initiatives present all the characteristics of nonconformity to the natural law, which makes them incompatible with the dignity of the law. Wherever the family is in crisis, the society falters. The family has a right to be protected and promoted by society, as many constitutions enforce and states around the whole world recognize. And I note that the downgrading of many marriage laws has made the above scenario commonplace in much So before moving on, are you familiar with this as a concept, de facto unions, as a package of issues people are dealing with. We have multiple nations in the room. <laughs> I don't know what our laws are here, to be honest with you. I don't know how this works. But it's like there's no from experience my aunt's sister was living in one of these and I know at the end of her partner's life like there was some 
difficulty, things like that. But I don't really know what. I think in New Mexico, I could be mistaken about this, but I think if you've been living with someone for at least five years, it's treated as a common law marriage, meaning that legally you would have the same rights as a married couple. Yeah, I know UK law also has this concept of common law marriage. Um, and do you think that's the case you th in New Mexico? Mm -hmm. That may not be all states have common law marriage recognized, I don't know. I know it would vary by state in the US. Of course, because marriage is a state thing, isn't it? With my knowledge back home in Uganda, is the state doesn't have that authority to define marriage. The, the authority church looks to the, the church. The, the couple has to have a church document that indicates The state doesn't. And if someone turns up at the hospital wanting to see their partner who's in hospital but they're not married to them, do you think they'd be less in or not? Yeah. So it's just as a priest, you will come across this a lot in all kinds of levels. So somebody is sick and in hospital and somebody else wants to visit them. But they're only allowed to visit them if they have what the government recognizes as some pivotal relationship. Because for reason, reasons of privacy, reasons of confidentiality, you don't just let strangers in, at least on many occasions, depending what they are with. So the question of how the law defines who's allowed in or not varies a bit, um, but one of the conditions historically would be marriage. That if you're married to someone, you kind of have prime place in terms of the ability to get in and visit somebody. Whereas just turning up and saying, oh, I'm a friend of theirs, you know, if they're only in there with a toenail, um, you could probably get in, but that there was something serious. And the thing that Darkman points to is an asymmetrical relationship of, of benefits and rights. So society shouldn't give to an unmarried couple all the rights that they would also give to a married couple because marriage is serving the common good. So I think you could well say um, that society should give some kind of rights and contacts and whatever, but it shouldn't be the same as marriage, because if it is, marriage becomes nothing, mm. and marriage is therefore no longer promoted. <coughs> Jacob, did you have your... No, you're... Okay, Joseph. England, but when you're a priest and you're going to 
marriage, do the couple need have a prior civil document that recognize their marriage before you marry? Before they, they marry in the church or is the other way around? Friends, you get your marriage at the town hall and then go to the church, if I remember correctly. In England, you do it all in the church. Yeah. That's the way it is here, too. Right. It's just certificate. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the, the church has the authority to give a, a civil certificate. Or the civil certificate, the, the government recognizes the church. Yeah, the government recognizes church weddings as legal marriages mm -hmm. here. Yeah. But it must be processed through the government. Yeah, it's a little lot. more particular than that. Yeah. Right. So, okay. in the city of Ohio, the couple has to get a marriage license yeah. from the probate court. They bring that to the ceremony mm -hmm. at the church, and then the minister has his license to solemnize marriages from the state of Ohio, so then he can sign and make that form official. Mm -hmm. So it's all one act, but right. sort of right. the priest is doing, or deacon is doing two roles. Which is the same as the British system, then. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we have to make sure they have a blue slip when they mm -hmm. come up to the mm -hmm. wedding. But you see the issue of this asymmetrical benefits and obligations. The state gives married people certain benefits because by being married they are serving the common good. And if you give those same rights and benefits to everybody, well then they're no longer a benefit to marriage and you're no longer promoting marriage. Now in America, civil unions for same-sex couples never really happened because the Supreme Court kind of jumped the gun and went straight for marriage for same-sex couples. But in lots of Western countries, that's the route that's been gone down. Britain now has a very untidy situation where you can have a civil union that isn't a marriage, you can have a same-sex marriage, or you could be living in some kind of something else. Um, However you want to define it. Um, but um, it's worth us looking at because there's always the possibility somehow this scenario could come up again. Um, okay, so I've got a little section there on Pope Francis's recent comments. I'm going to go through those. Um, So, um, October the 21st, there's this documentary, TV documentary, Francesco issued, that quoted Pope Francis approving civil unions for same-sex couples. So I make a couple of notes, I say, the documentary contains no new quotes, but rather cuts and splices old quotes. So there's one of them you can see where he's kind of halfway through a sentence, it seems, and it's cut, and then there's commentary, and then the rest of that comes later. So it gives the impression of him saying something different because of how he's been cut and spliced. Now, accurately, so some of what it says is accurate. Pope Francis has said, homosexual persons deserve to be part of a family. Deserve to be part of a family. He didn't say they deserve to have a family. 
family, i.e. have children of their own. And that's what the documentary claimed. Now in Argentina, where he was from, um, he suggested a political compromise of civil unions rather than have the church concede same-sex marriages. And I note in bold that the political compromises that local church leaders make in any context is always a matter of prudential judgment. You know, often the church, we don't get our way. So we have to work with what we've got. Sometimes we make a compromise. So sometimes it's a better compromise. Sometimes it's a worse compromise. But hopefully it's always guided by sound doctrine. So what he said here doesn't change doctrine in any manner. Um, now there has been a lot you know, out there on the blogosphere's um, debate about the Spanish term he uses. Um, I can't even pronounce that. <laughs> Do you want to tell us, Brian? Well, Daniel's the Argentinian term. Una ley de convivencia civil. Okay. So apparently that doesn't have the same connotation as an English language civil union, because Argentinian law doesn't frame such unions as inherently sexual. And I make the contrast there, unlike British law, which does. So in Britain, if you have a same-sex union, um, not a same-sex marriage, a same-sex civil union, the law presumes that is a sexual union. And this has been tested in the courts, and it means you can't have two sisters in a same-sex union thinking, well, we'll source out our inheritance issues mm -hmm. by getting a civil union. Or two friends that have no sexual dimension to their relationship at all, but we've been sharing a house for 50 years, neither of us have got married, what's going to happen when one of us dies? Well, we'll get into a civil union together. So the British law has been framed saying, no, this is only for people in a sexual union. Argentinian law, civil law, doesn't presume that. So therefore, for the, the Pope or the, Argent, the Buenos Aires Archbishop, as he then was, to be saying, okay, we'll concede a civil union, is actually a much less significant thing to be conceding. And I note inaccurately, and this is kind of the pivotal point, the, docu the documentary makes him appear to argue that same-sex civil unions are a good thing per se, that it's right that there should be civil recognition of these things. And I don't think that's actually faithful to what he's argued in many other cases about same-sex unions. So the gay lobby have bought into this narrative, Pope Francis is our Pope. But actually, if you look historically at other things he said, I just don't think that fits the facts. So say, to take his own words, he says in Amor Satizie, so this is you know, on marriage and family, um, we need to acknowledge the great variety of family situations that can offer a certain stability. But de facto, or same-sex unions, for example, may not simply be equated with marriage. No union that is temporary or close to the transmission of life can ensure the future of society. Yeah, that's very, that doesn't sound like a pope who's you know, positively endorsing same-sex civil unions. And um, so this is just over a week ago now, well, no, actually nearly two weeks, um, there was an explanatory note issued by the Vatican Secretariat of State that said, 
about this whole thing. More than a year ago, during an interview, Pope Francis answered two different questions at two different times that, in the aforementioned documentary, were edited and published as a single answer without proper contextualization, which has led to confusion. It is clear that Pope Francis was referring to certain state provisions, and certainly not the doctrine of the church, which is reaffirmed numerous times over the years. Um, now, I did say in my email that I sent out to the House about this, that that um, explanatory note had no signature on it. So, um, I mean, it is clearly the case that within the Vatican, whoever is running the media, you can say there's anyone running the media, um, there's great confusion. Um, and there are certain people with agendas that are trying to get ahead and jump ahead of other people and claiming to speak for the Pope. Um, I think it was with my other class. Did I compare the media under John Paul II? Someone spoke to you about the truth of me. Is that me to you? Yes. So under, under John Paul II, under Navarro Sabalas. The spin doctors was a very smooth machine. Pope Benedict took the brave step. I'm going to speak to the media directly, no spin doctors. And ever since, the media relations between the Vatican and the media have been progressively worse. Um, and I make that point to say that it's not just Pope Francis, but actually it wasn't great under Benedict either. Um, okay, so um, next page, page nine. Um, so this is quoting, and there's an entire page of and even this is only a partial quote, but I've taken various paragraphs from a document from 2003 from the CDF called <coughs> Considerations Regarding Proposals to Give Legal Recognition to Unions Between Homosexual Persons. Um, uh, can we go around the room and each read a paragraph? Would you mind starting, Jay? Um, uh, starting with the present considerations. The present considerations are also intended to give direction to Catholic politicians by indicating the approaches to proposed legislation in this area, which would be consistent with Christian conscience. Since this question relates to the natural moral law, the arguments that follow are addressed not only to those who believe in Christ, but to all persons committed to promoting and defending the common good of society. Those who would move from tolerance to the legitimization of specific rights for cohabiting homosexual persons need to be reminded that the approval or legislation of evil is something far different from the toleration of evil. In those situations where homosexual unions have been legally recognized or have been given the legal status and rights belonging to marriage, clear and emphatic opposition is a duty. One must refrain from any kind of formal cooperation in the enactment of app or application of such gravely unjust laws, and, as far as possible, from material cooperation on the level of their application. In this area, everyone can exercise the right to conscientious objection. Okay, Manuel, could you read the next little paragraph? Because married couples ensure the succession of generations and are therefore eminently within the public interest, 
Sivolo grants them institutional recognition. Homosexual unions, on the other hand, do not need specific attention from the legal standpoint since they do not exercise this function for the common good. Now, is the argument valid according to which legal recognition of homosexual unions is necessary to avoid situations in which cohabiting homosexual persons simply because they live together might be deprived of real recognition of their rights as persons and as citizens. In reality, we can always make use of the provisions of law, like all citizens, from the standpoint of their private autonomy to protect their rights in matters of common interest. It would be gravely unjust to sacrifice the common good and just laws and the family in order to protect personal goods that can and must be guaranteed in ways that do not harm the body of society. If it is true that all Catholics are obliged to oppose the legal recognition of homosexual unions, Catholic politicians are obliged to do so in a particular way, in keeping with their responsibility as politicians. Faced with legislative proposals in favor of homosexual unions, Catholic politicians are to take account of the following ethical indications. When legislation in favor of the recognition of homosexual unions is proposed for the first time in a legislative assembly, a Catholic lawmaker has a moral duty to express his opposition clearly, publicly, and to vote against it. To vote in favor of a law so harmful for the common good is gravely immoral. Jacob. When legislation in favor of the recognition of homosexual unions is already in force, the Catholic politician must oppose it in the ways that are possible for him and make his opposition known. It is his duty to witness to the truth. If it is not possible to repeal such a law completely, the Catholic politician, recalling the indications contained in the encyclical letter Evangelium Vitae, should licitly support proposals aimed at limiting the harm done by such a law and at lessening its negative consequences at the level of general opinion and public morality on the condition that his absolute personal opposition to such laws was clear and well known and that the danger of scandal was avoided. This does not mean that a more restrictive law in this area could be considered just or even acceptable. <coughs> Rather, it is a question of the legitimate and dutiful attempt to obtain at least the partial repeal of an unjust law when its total abrogation is not possible at the moment. So the last three paragraphs, because those are the ones most recently read to you, in terms of being clear, we've all understood what's being said there. So here the context is, what's the politician to do, the Catholic politician? So on one level, yes, this is addressed to all people of goodwill, but here there's kind of a pastoral note, the shepherds of the church, you a Catholic politician, were particularly termed you. What are they saying? So it distinguishes first, the first time this comes up in a legislative assembly in a country, you've got to, you've got to vote no. So, so your position is clear. Later, however, you're likely to face scenarios where there's already a law on this and you've got the opportunity to vote on a proposal to change the law. 
well, then it's saying you might end up voting for what is itself a bad law, but a less bad law than the current law. So therefore you are voting for a lesser evil because that's the only choice you have. And as long as your opposition is already known, there's no issue of public scandal. Have you heard this enunciated with respect to abortion laws, for example? So I know in this country it's not really a thing because the Supreme Court's kind of taken abortion out of most of the legislative hands. But in Britain, abortion became legal by an act of parliament. Um, and I think it's 23 weeks now. You, know, you can have an abortion up to 23 weeks in a pregnancy. There have been lots of proposals over the years to reduce that term limit, to have a law that says, well, you can only have an abortion up to 18 weeks, say, or 12 weeks. Or, um, now, a Catholic politician, by this principle, can vote for an abortion law for 18 weeks in order to not have the current law of 23 weeks. So what the Pope is saying there is, yes, on one level you seem to be voting for abortion, but you're actually voting for a reduction, a lesser evil, because of the law already in place is a greater evil. Have you heard this point articulated before? Yeah. Okay, so that there would be something similar in many legal debates about same-sex legislation, if it ever somehow gets Congress, again, gets a look in rather than the Supreme Court. Um, um, okay, the second paragraph there. Um, clear and emphatic opposition is a duty on the level of application. Wasn't there someone in the country here who refused, a justice of the peace, refused to do a same-sex union? That's it, that's it. Um, <laughs> right, so there we have an example of somebody living this out um, and suffering for living it out. Um, <laughs> And we can imagine there are, have already been and there are going to be many new scenarios continually arising where clear and emphatic opposition at the level of application becomes our duty. As priests, in guiding our faithful, it's our duty to lead them in this because um, they're, in a sense, in the front line in secular professions where application of these things is there. But we need to be pointing out there are, there are moral issues here, moral issues for you in cooperating with an unjust law. And I would say one of the risks here in America, which is the same for us in Britain, is we can think we're in a Christian country and that therefore every job should be available to me. Whereas if you're already living in a persecuted country, 
you would just realize there are some jobs I can't do because I'm being persecuted in my country because I'm a Christian. Well, the more the laws in America are framed in unchristian principles, the more it's going to be the case that there will be some professions that a Christian cannot do. Because if he does, the law will punish him for doing so. So in this, I don't know, state by state here, are doctors required to perform abortions in any cases? No. I don't know if there are any states where doctors are required to perform abortions. Okay. Whereas in the UK, that's an ongoing issue. Um, and particularly in the training of doctors, in order to qualify as a doctor, are you able to do this procedure? Doctors need to be able to do all the procedures. Can you do this procedure or not? So that's been an ongoing issue there. Um, so it would be not much of a stretch from our current situation to envisage a situation where you might say, well, actually we can no longer have Catholics be doctors because the law of the land would require you, if you're going to be a doctor, to do something evil. And I flag that up as a scenario because we shouldn't be presuming well, I'm an American, I should be able to do everything an American can do. Well, if the law of the land actually is unjust and requiring you to do something unjust, you might, as a Catholic, have to step away from that role and get a job you didn't want to do because you spent 10 years qualifying for that job and you've been doing it for 20 years and now the law's changed. And are you going to be a Christian? Or are you going to be an obedient servant to the state? Okay, then the middle paragraph there, make use of provisions of the law. This is with respect to cohabiting couples. So basically what it's saying is, rather than giving same-sex couples legally recognized unions, to defend inheritance rights or whatever, well, actually, they can draw up wills to hand over property. There are other legal provisions that normal citizens have. It's not as if there are no provisions. I've ended up spending a lot longer on this than I was initially thinking, but I think it's important for us to, to go through, because actually, it kind of crystallizes so many of the other things that all fit together here. Okay, we've got 15 minutes left. I want us to go back in my notes to page six. On the call to chastity. Um, and so this relates, um, I asked you to read for today the pages from the handbook for courage and encourage chaplains. That's one example of an organization existing to help people with same-sex attraction be chaste. So at the top of the page there, I quote from the Catechism. Um, Homosexual persons are called to chastity by the virtues of self-mastery that teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship, by prayer, 
and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. So chastity, you know, we're all called to chastity. There's no one who isn't called to chastity. The form of chastity (coughs) varies according to your state of life. The struggle to live chastity varies according to whatever individual weaknesses we all have. But everyone's called to chastity, and homosexual persons are likewise called to chastity. So what does it refer to there? I've put in the bullet points uh, some things. Effective maturity. So in our affections, how we relate, there needs to be a maturity that brings with it, quoting, inner freedom and disinterested, disinterested friendship. So in many bad examples of people with the same sex attraction, there is a lack of affective maturity, that that goes with a shallowness, a desperation in reaching out for affection um, that has with it a lack of inner freedom. So what we should be seeking to help someone with is in their affections grow in maturity so that they have that inner freedom, that they can have a friendship with somebody that isn't somewhere lurking in the background thinking about sex. Avoiding occasions of sin. Um, so, you know, we all know what the category of occasion of sin, that means places and person or persons. Pretty obviously it means not cohabiting with a partner. So you'll get this in confession. Someone will come to you in confession um, and they're confessing having engaged in same-sex acts. And they know it's a sin, that's why they're there in confession. But they're living with their partner and they're planning to go back to their partner. Um, Well, that's not going to be very easy to be chased. Um, What's your role as a priest, as a confessor there? You've done confessional practice. That comes next semester sometime. Um, You've done confessional theology, I'm guessing. So what's your role at that stage? What do you have to say to that person? Not, not how do you say it, but what do you have to say? I'm really breaking up the partner. And at the moment of confession, that has to be the resolution. Yeah, so a clear purpose of amendment. Now that doesn't mean that there in the confessional they planned, how am I going to start this conversation? How am I going to, what day am I going to move out? You know, all kinds of things like that. They don't have to have resolved and be telling you. But they do have to have that as their purpose, their purpose of amendment. Because if they're planning to stay with this person, they're planning to remain in an occasion of sin. And so our role as a confessor is gently but clearly we do need to challenge them on that. And you will have, as sadly I've had as a priest, repeated occasions when someone in a same-sex union will say, oh, well, Father so-and-so said it was okay. My pastor said it's okay. 
and sadly, on more than one occasion, that pastor may himself be in a dubious situation um, and therefore giving out dubious advice. So we are in a, a moment of history where we do sometimes have to say, well, I'm sorry if someone else has said or appeared to say that, but I need to say to you what is the Catholic position, what is faithful to Christ. You are called to chastity, and what you're describing living with this person isn't a situation of chastity. Okay, celibacy is possible, even if not chosen. Now, chastity for the person with same-sex attraction isn't the same as my celibacy. I'm, I'm celibate because I took a promise. I took a sacred promise. I committed myself to that as a part of my vocation to the priesthood. I'm quite certain I wouldn't be celibate if I hadn't been ordained a priest. I've, I have no sense of a celibate vocation distinct from my, my sense of vocation to the priesthood. Um, I'm very happy of them being together, but, um, but the point I want to make is there's a different living of celibacy for someone who hasn't chosen it as a part of something else, but just kind of finds himself having no other moral option. And that's where chastity for someone with same-sex attraction isn't the same as chastity for someone with heterosexual attraction. Because they can choose to be single or choose to be married. Um, someone with same-sex attraction has less options. Now I note, there are many diverse categories of persons who lack an opportunity for genital expression. So maybe due to the illness of their spouse, or due to their own illness, or due to other sexual attractions that are disordered in other ways. Um, you know, there are just a lot of people out there who aren't having sex and aren't ever going to be able to have sex. So if we buy into the modern thing that you have to have sex to be happy, you have to have sex to be normally chaste, that just isn't reality. And so what we're asking of the person with same-sex attraction isn't that unnormal. And then, of course, a large number of people with same-sex attraction also have heterosexual attraction, that there's a kind of a spectrum there. So that actually for a large number, if not the majority of such people, actually they do have an option to marry um, if they're a man, marry a woman. Um, there's a complication in there for them and they will have a lifelong struggle with that. Um, and I'm sure you will hear cases in confession over the years or in pastoral guidance. Maybe that kind of secret will only get manifested later in the marriage or it will be said before the marriage but then throws a whole honesty complication um, but that's probably more common than someone who is kind of saying oh I have no attraction to women that's not an option at all
And then, as I say, there, there are organizations like Courage that exist to help people be chased. Um, and then my final note on this section is, you know, that the honesty of recognizing, as the catechism puts it, that same-sex attraction for someone who's wanting to be chased, wanting to follow the Lord, the condition itself is a trial. The number of men and women who have deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. This inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for them a trial. They must be accepted with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Every sign of unjust discrimination in their regard should be avoided. These persons are called to fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross the difficulties they may encounter from 